0: Let's get started by thanking our wonderful sponsors who make this show possible every week. We can't thank them enough. With more screen usage and indoor time, myopia, also known as nearsightedness, is increasing and getting worse in children. Now, certified eye doctors can prescribe my sight one day the first and only FDA-approved soft contact lens to slow myopia progression in age-appropriate children. Visit coopervision.com to find a Brilliant Futures certified eye doctor near you. Hello and welcome to the Open Your Eyes podcast. I'm Dr. Kerry Gill, the host of the documentary Open Your Eyes. Please visit the film's website at OpenYourEyes2020.com, featuring interviews with more than 50 optometrists, from around the country sharing information on eye care and eye disease. If you're new here and you like our interviews, press like, subscribe, share, and hit the bell to get notifications of great new interviews. Also, please leave comments. Vision therapy and developmental optometry has helped thousands of children and adults improve their vision and in many cases, transform lives. Today's guest, Denver optometrist, Dr. Lynn Hellestein, Dr. Hellestein's breakthrough vision methods have helped many patients unlock barriers to learning, improve vision perception, and processing defects. Dr. Hellestein is an educator, electrifying speaker, and best-selling author. Her newest book is called Expand Your Vision. And here it is, Expand Your Vision. Dr. Hellestein, thank you for joining me today. Hi, thank you, Carrie. It's my pleasure. So, Dr. Haldestein, I'm really interested in in doctors like you. You're a best-selling author. You're an optometrist. You're really a credit to our profession. And uh, I just want to congratulate you for your life's work. Uh, You you really make us all in optometry very proud. So I want to start off with you've been the head of something called COVD. Uh, What is vision therapy and what is COVD? Thank you. Well,
1: COVD, the acronym stands for College of Optometrists in Vision Development is an organization and certifying body um, for those in vision therapy and vision development. Um, It's a group of optometrists and vision therapists that are interested in what in our field is called vision therapy. And vision therapy is really teaching the brain, teaching the eye, brain, body coordination uh, to improve things like tracking or focusing, eye coordination, visual processing, et cetera. Uh, we will see many, many patients that may actually see well, see 2020, that have real difficulty in school and sports and in life. And often there's either misdiagnosed or, or even diagnosed uh, problems in eye coordination or uh, focusing that go way beyond just the glasses and contact lens prescriptions
0: that you often talk about on your show and and in real life. So explain to the the public, what does 2020 vision mean? And is 2020 eyesight versus vision? Is eyesight, 2020 eyesight, is that good enough? So 2020 really just means
1: at 20 feet, you can see a certain size ladder, about an inch. And it's just a measure of what we call visual acuity. Uh, However, there are at least 17 or more visual skills that are important for you to be successful. And whether you're trying to hit a baseball or read a book or or, uh, drive, it goes well beyond 2020. And the big myth is that 2020 is perfect vision and we know that's not true because, for example, um, a little kiddo may have 2020 and have crossed eyes and passed their school screening. We also find out your super athletes see much better than 2020. Uh, it's around 20 over eight. So they, they see much smaller uh, objects at a, a further distance. So 2020 is just kind of uh, a measure on the bar, you know, kind of like a typical height, a typical weight. This is a typical.
0: Visual acuity, just one of many visual skills. You mentioned 17 visual skills. Can you give us an example of some of those visual skills? Sure.
1: Uh, There are a lot of eye movement skills. We might call pursuits, like following an object or a saccade, like looking from object to object. That's the type of eye movement that you're especially using in reading. Uh, You have convergence, coordinating both eyes together. Accommodation, those of you who get to be around 40 plus and find out they just can't see the the small print pretty well and need reading glasses, that's accommodation, but we find that kind of a problem often in young kids. And then you get into many of the visual processing, um, eye-hand coordination, stereopsis, depth perception, we even include visual memory and, and it just goes on and on with those types of skills.
0: So how do we test, how does an optometrist check for some of these visual skills, take a few of them and tell us as when a patient comes in, say a kid with some learning problems or, or someone who wants to do a little better in sports, what are some of the tests that we may perform as doctors to see if somebody is adequate and what we want to get them is optimal. We don't want adequate, we want optimal. What are some of those tests? Sure, well, those of you
1: who've had eye exams have experienced many things of, you know, calling the letters out on a wall is the visual acuity. We'll do that at distance, we'll also do that at near. And then just uh, some of the tests that I showed you like the tracking and the convergence, and then we'll put you behind these instruments. They look like the big Mickey Mouse ears for opters where there's automatic um, high-tech instruments to measure how near or far-sighted you are. And then the doctor will often ask you to line up objects one over the other, use lenses and prisms to see how far, you know, just like an athlete would test their muscle coordination, and flexibility, we do those kinds of tests on an eye exam as well, using lenses and prisms, 3D glasses for depth perception, of course we're going to check the eye health, so there's lots of really cool high tech instruments, look at the back of your eye, your retina, and look at the eye. Uh, Um, quality of your retina through other high-tech instruments, and that's typically a first eye exam. It may or may not include dilating drops, and that's kind of the basic exam, but when we have patients coming in that have uh, learning problems, reading dyslexia problems, special needs, those with concussion or post-stroke, then we have a whole second battery of tests where we're looking in more depth at your whole visual field of awareness. And for us to evaluate a kiddo with special needs, it may take two and a half hours. The first eye exam may be 30 minutes to an hour, depending on the quality of your history, really. And then the second evaluation is often looking at some paper-pencil tasks, memory tasks, getting up and moving, trying lenses and prisms. So it's quite... Quite more involved than your traditional eye
0: exam that you go in uh, yearly. And can we improve visual skills through exercises?
1: Uh, It's a great question. And the absolute answer is yes. If you watch a little baby developmentally, often the baby's not looking at you very well. Sometimes you'll see their eyes cross. They don't always track initially. But by six months, you hope that baby's really focused on your face, following you around, actually could be measured with depth perception. And vision is not, you know, as long as we have healthy eyeballs, which and healthy neurologic connections, which probably 95% of my patients have healthy ocular neurologic structures, then what we're really doing is working on the eye-brain connection. And just as a kiddo, you can watch, learn to read, learn to ride a bike, learn to hit a baseball, learn to drive. All of those skills involve visual improvement as well as visual motor, vision body improvement. So th- those types of skills can be trained. And if you get in with the athletes, and I've just heard a couple of your last interviews about sports vision, athletes can train their speed, their awareness. And now the big thing is to improve the visual processing, visual motor skills. So the brain is very plastic, neuroplasticity, can be improved at almost any age. And uh, there's great potential for improving visual processing skills.
0: How much learning is through vision?
1: Estimates based on neurology is that approximately 75 to 80% of your learning is through the visual process. And it's not to ignore other sensory systems, you know, auditory awareness, um, physical touch, smell, all of that. But vision is involved in almost everything we do. Think about from getting up in the morning and, and uh, making your coffee, driving in school. It's so much visual learning, in sports. So you know, even even though we think we see okay, if there's any breakdown in any of the visual processing skills there's a good chance that we're not performing to our potential.
0: Now you came up with see it, say it, do it. Can you explain how we could use that and use it with vision with children or adults in vision therapy to try to help them?
1: Surely through my 40 years, 40 plus years of vision therapy work, I learned so much from my patients as well as myself as to what we can do to help people perform and reach their highest potential. And we start with the vision, like we talked about, can you see, can you coordinate your eyes, can you focus? And I used to have a lot of patients that, for example, they'd come in, little seven, eight-year-olds, and they weren't reading well. And after we worked with them, often their reading greatly improved. We would always screen to see if they had other problems like phonics problems and sight work problems, We'd be working closely with the school or tutors. So it's not like we could cure all the problems just with vision therapy. We were working with other disciplines as well. But often they were getting special reading with special help, yet they couldn't track well on the page, needed the fingers, things like that. Well, we would do the vision therapy and see great improvement in reading. And some of the kids just took off and were very successful. And this, some of the kids still saw themselves internally as a bad reader. That's what they'd say. I'm, I'm stupid. I, I can't perform well. And you'll see that even with athletes, athletes that have superior skills, that if they don't see themselves as a winner and they see themselves, for example, falling off the balance beam or missing the balls, often what we create on our inner mind is really trained and practice. And if we treat keep creating negative images, that's how we perform. So I started working with these kids on their not only external visioning, but their internal visioning. Create themselves, see themselves as a reader. And often when I'd say to at a little kiddo that said, I, I can't read, I hate to read. And I had them close their eyes and breathe a little bit and picture themselves as a reader. And what they saw was a little kid scrunched up book on their face and all the other kids outside of them laughing at them and you know you're not going to be very powerful if that's the image you have of yourself so we would play games of pretending like we blow ourselves up to be larger the print pull it out bigger maybe imagine somebody their mom or their pet with them to give them confidence and now see themselves bigger and they get up And you could see their whole posture and their breathing change. And that's the power of visualization. And so we started working with vision, both externally, internally, and making sure there was a match between what's in our mind, what we see, what we say, do it. So a lot of times, and I can give you stories about that, but a lot of times people will say, I can't do that. I can't do that. I'm not smart enough. I'm not good enough. And the do it piece is what breaks them down. And then, uh, I'm sorry, that's the say it piece. And then the do it is the action. So see it, say it, do it is really built on what uh, big businesses do, create their vision, their mission statement, and their action plans. And I started using that concept with kids. You know, I don't wanna do my homework, right? You know, it takes too long. Well, let's close our eyes, breathe. If we finished our homework, what would you look like? I'm happy, I'm playing, I'm outside. You know. So there's the see it. Let's say it and they come up with anything, I'm done or I can do this. or, And then a little action plan on how we're gonna get it done. And, and we started implementing that with young kids as young as four and five and started great, seeing great results in the follow through and the belief in themselves. and and teaching the kids that it's within their own selves. You know, I can't do my homework because of mom or the dog's too noisy. When you start really working on the empowerment of see it, say it, do it, you see these kids perform better and athletes have done this for years. And so it's taking what uh, major league musicians and athletes have done for years and really putting in language for young kids to be powerful um, for themselves.
0: I've read that visualization, something that you're speaking about right now, if an athlete practices through visualization, say they're doing batting and they're taking swings, but they do it through visualization, it's equal or almost as equal as actually going on the field and doing that. Is there any research to back that up or is that, is that a possibility? It's more than a possibility.
1: Um, <clears throat> excuse me. It's actually uh, been shown in research. You know, they did initial studies that I read in basketball, you know, some that would practice their free throws, some that would practice in their head and some doing both. And when they practice in their mind and head, it was almost the same percentage of going out and playing their sport. And athletes know this, you know, if you have an injured athlete, often their trainer will really work on them with visualization, why they're trying to recover to go through the motions of their mind and and see it so visualization now has so much research in sports uh in health in recovery uh in learning in fact there was just an article in the um, um one of the big newspapers back east on kids um, the importance of visualization for reading and comprehension and they've done a lot of research that as well great readers don't even see the print in their head, they see the story in their head. And when you start comprehending that way, <clears throat> you know that you really get it. And great readers actually want to read before they see the movie. So there's actually a lot of research now on visualization.
0: Is there any research to show why some people uh, love to read and other people hate to read? And I'm sure there's a lot of factors involved, but what are the vision factors involved why some kids really hate to read? What would the visual conditions be? Yeah, many of these kids that,
1: let's let's say they know how to read, they know how to sound out words, they um, have the sight words and hate reading. Well, those are classic examples that they may have what's called convergence insufficiency where they might see double or blurred out to about 10 to 15, 20 inches. And they won't report double vision. They will often, often they're good readers to about fourth grade when the reading, um, the print becomes really small. And they'll talk about the words moving or dancing on the page and losing our place, getting headaches. And those, those are really our miracle cases because they have the skill, the educational and language skill of reading They don't have the fluency and comprehension. We work a short time, maybe six to eight to 10 weeks in vision therapy, and those kids often jump years in progress. And people are shocked. We're not shocked because they actually had the reading skills. They just visually couldn't physically get on the page and sustain that. Many other kids are very complex in that they have both the tracking and possibly some language skills. And those are the kids that we work very closely with tutors in the schools. Somebody needs to help them with uh, decoding the sounding out the words, the sight words. But again, many of these kids get better at that, but they can't use those skills on the page because the tracking convergence, that perception, uh, even prescriptions out of focus. And that's where we come in and can be a great asset for these little kids.
0: So the low hanging fruit is something that we could optometrists commonly diagnose something called convergence insufficiency, convergence insufficiency. So if we go from learning to read, from reading to learn, that's where the breakdown happens. How do we diagnose or has an optometrist diagnosed convergence insufficiency? And what are some of the exercises that are prescribed, specific exercises to help these uh, kids with convergence insufficiency that Skip, misread, lose their place. Uh, They hate reading out loud. They have poor reading comprehension. I've had kids where they would talk into a tape recorder or something similar. Now you know, obviously, it's no tape recorders, but whatever they would use into their phone. and then they would listen to it because that's how they would learn it. Because it was so difficult for them to read, it was like running a race with a 10-pound weight on their ankle. So if you could go into a little bit more depth on that condition called convergence insufficiency and how it affects reading and what could be done about it. Sure. Convergence insufficiency is one of the diagnoses that's
1: probably most well researched uh, in functional vision world. Uh, Many studies, millions of dollars, many studies to show that a a patient with convergence insufficiency uh, has symptoms like double vision, blurred, loss of place, et cetera. Uh, it's fairly easy to actually evaluate if you do the testing. You know, if you just get a quick test, dilate the eyes um, and look for near farsightedness, you will miss it. And so many of these kids have been skipped over and missed. Uh, the easiest test starts with just taking an object and moving like a finger or a little ball closer and closer and closer and see where the eyes. Aren't focused anymore. Um, you should be able to converge to about two to three inches. And if you see that start breaking, you should do it a couple times. And often what we'll see is the kids go, I never see double, and they're way back moving their head. So you need to make sure the head's stable. And then what you can watch how their eyes converge uh, and you measure that distance. And then we do more complex tests using lenses and prisms to see what kind of ranges of fusion of using both eyes together uh, they have to compensate. So it's really fairly easy, very non-tech kind of evaluation for convergence. Now, when we find the problem, often it's not in isolation. So let's keep it in our mind. It's often not just convergence insufficiency. There's often an eye movement kind of problem, maybe a need for lenses and glasses or focusing So we look at the whole picture, then we decide, do we need glasses and or vision therapy? If we need vision therapy, there's very specific activities um, that we use from very low tech of just like a string and a bead and asking a patient with, if we had a string and a bead to really look at the bead, point to the bead, can they actually see? And it's kind of cool. You can try this demonstration yourself where you Take two fingers and put one in front of the other and look at your close finger for a second. And if you're really lined up with your fingers, if you look at the close finger, you'll actually see two fingers behind you. And that's normal. If you look at the far finger, you see two fingers in front of you. And using that concept called physiological diplopia, meaning where you look should be single, but in front or behind it might be double. And our brain normally ignores that. Using that concept, there's a lot of instrumentation that's been created to help people learn to know where their eyes are pointed. We have that string and bead and you say, look here, a lot of times the patient's looking way far away and they think they're looking at the bead and they don't know it. So we have to give them feedback on where they're looking so they can do something about it and change it. That's a very low tech kind of an activity. We have computer games and red, green, and 3D and and even virtual reality now activities. And the whole goal is to really give feedback to the patient, how their eyes are looking and coordinating. And then the patient trying to learn to figure out what can I do to be right on focus. And once they learn that it becomes more automatic. And then we integrate it with other kinds of skills.
0: How common is vision? How common is convergence and sufficiency? And for the viewers out there, where I don't have my typical background, I'm in Cancun, so it's, I'm a little dark. But uh, we're doing—I'm doing it from a conference room. I try to do the podcast with the ocean behind me, but it was too dark in my hotel room. So I just wanted to bring that up. So, how common is convergence insufficiency, and how well does the treatment work? Where we—you know—they might have some eye movement problems as well. How how successful is the treatment? And again, if you could review for the parents out there, the signs and symptoms of reading problem that may be associated with emergency sufficiency. I'll start with the signs and symptoms. Often you'll either
1: see you know, obvious things like blinking or holding the print out, maybe even covering an eye, turning an eye head so that we're not using both eyes together, headaches. But often, Many of these little kids have no um, symptoms. They just won't read. So they just avoid the reading. Again, the obvious where they were readers, loved to read, top of the reading class, and now they've stopped. That's another obvious sign. Now, the um, incidence of convergence insufficiency, it's hard to really get really great data. I mean, it's often somewhere around 8%, 10%, I believe. I can't remember the exact number. But I don't even think that's totally accurate because it's one of the number one um, findings that we uh, see in patients that have had concussion and brain injury and the incidence of convergence insufficiencies even higher in that group. So it's a significant number, but not all docs test for it. As simple as it is to evaluate it, not all docs test thoroughly for it. So that's why it's, it's, been, it's a simple thing to evaluate, but getting the literature and the norms for that has taken years and years uh, of controlled studies to finally evaluate. As far as success, it's probably our number one type of diagnosis that we have great success. If I see a patient that there's not a lot of other learning issues and, and motivation issues and mainly has convergence insufficiency, I love that because we are gonna be so highly successful. I mean, vision therapy in my practice, and I did studies, and the results of that are in my first, my first book, See It, Say It, Do It, are way in the 90 percentiles for success, but you have to define success. Meaning it's not like we get every child to read at or above level. You know, if they have dyslexia and severe, le- severe learning problems, there's other issues. Success is can we improve the visual skills and functioning? of the visual system. And almost 95% of the times that's possible if we're careful about the types of patients we bring in. So we screen them carefully, make sure that we can document the visual problems, carefully do the vision therapy, and then retest and can show great improvements, not only in the uh, measured skills, the tracking, focus, convergence, step perception, but also in the self-confidence and, and success, and that's why you know, my new book, the subtitle, How to Gain Clarity, Courage, and Confidence, comes out of vision therapy. Even if we can't cure all the issues, when people really are empowered to know and be in charge of their mind and their vision and their visualization skills, you see a huge increase in, in, um, in the confidence and the clarity and the courage it takes to do, whether it's schoolwork or sports. And so uh, vision therapy is highly, uh, highly, highly successful. And convergence insufficiency is probably the number one diagnosis that we can pretty much give a great optimistic prognosis for improvement.
0: With eye movement problems, uh, there's now there's a lot of computer programs, like RightEye, to help people diagnose uh, eye movement problems and even use it for therapy. What's your success been with programs like that? Great. And thanks for bringing me back. You know, the, the
1: studies that NIH did and all, were looking at doing vision therapy for 10 to 12 weeks versus what many doctors do is just what we call pencil pushes just pencil push-ups, just watching this finger. And they found by just doing home pencil push-ups, you didn't get the success. You needed to do the in-office. Uh, careful, documented vision therapy—that's where you got your success. Now, part of the equipments we use—you know, when I started over 40 years ago in this field, we only had, you know, these lenses of 3D glasses and prisms and strings of beads and some instruments. Now, in 40 years, we have some really cool, high-tech instrumentation that you're talking about—computer um, orthoptics and and right eye—and there's just a number of programs that can be very helpful and very motivating for the kids and the adults. So we incorporate those types of instruments into therapy. But I caution parents that, you know, you can see these often and buy them online. And if you don't have a thorough evaluation, because sometimes we put on glasses and the convergence problem is already taken care of. And so just, Buying a program and trying it on your own is always a problem because there's often many other kinds of issues that need to be addressed first. Then once we see that, we might be able to incorporate those really cool computerized games. And, you know, I hate to say, you know, lots of people love it, but but we we could have a whole nother time on screen time and the problems of kids on the screen too long and the detriments of being on you know computers too long. So so we definitely incorporate it, but don't make it the only part of the
0: vision therapy. So what is your opinion about kids on computers? How much time do you think is acceptable and the unopposed blue light coming off the computer, you feel that's an issue?
1: Well, before the pandemic, we were always very careful and advising our patients. You know, No screen time for the little babies and then only X number of thirty minutes for the toddlers, and a you know a little more of as you get older and older. And once we're in the pandemic, we we had to throw out all of those recommendations because of what happened, the demands and kids on school and they're on the screen for four, six, eight hours a day, and then they have working parents, so the other hours they're watching videos and games. And so I don't think we have a clue of the impact of what's happened these last two years of kids. And adults being on the screen for this many hours. We know blue light can really bother a lot of people. And so, you know, many of our patients will put on specialty types of filters and tints on their glasses. But I don't think we have almost any research now on the impact of what's happened with all our kids on screen time for so many hours, not just from a vision standpoint, but also from a emotional, social, psychological kind of standpoint as well.
0: In your book, Expand Your Vision, uh, you mentioned that you were inspired by a number of people, Wayne Dyer, Deepak Chopra, uh, uh, Paul e- Eckhart, uh, Debson Della. Can you go through some of the things that you have learned from some of them or each of them? that had that inspired you or made you think about the world a little bit differently? Uh, thank you for that question, because that's
1: the, those are some of the people as long as well as many others that totally shifted my life and my thinking and my practice. Um, you know, it really started in 2002 when I had my own medical health issues, I ended up with a tumor in my colon and and needed surgery and and through all of this became allergic to all foods. And I've heard on your podcast, some functional docs and the importance of gut health. And that's something I did over 20 years ago because of my own personal health and breakdown. And during this time of trying to be well again, luckily I recovered from uh, the, the cancer and I did not need chemo yet. I became so allergic to foods, I couldn't stand to eat. And that became the mantra of my life. You know, I couldn't stand life. I couldn't digest food. And and it was through these people. I was really, I remember laying on the couch and watching uh, public fundraising TV and Wayne Dyer was raising, was the featured speaker. And he would talk about the power of intention, which ended up being my say it piece how to see it, say it, do it. And, and those are the folks that helped me add to what I already knew in vision, the power of vision, and I had already been doing some visualization, but listening to those folks was about really doing vision therapy on myself internally. And if you list, listen to the language like Wayne Dyer, um, he talked about, you need to see it to believe it. And when I first heard it, I thought, is, is Wayne Dyer an optometrist? Who's, you know, what's he doing here? And that's where I really those folks really influenced myself and my healing, to empower me. See so it, say it, do it came about during my time that I was uh, not well, and I had to reestablish uh, you know some type of system to to get back into my life. When I was sick, no longer did optometrist, speaker, mother, writer, none of that meant anything. I was in this really dark state of where am I? who am I in my life and what am I gonna to do to the rest of my life? And that's where this process really became alive and well. And those folks I thank greatly because that's who I listened to, read to and really started reestablishing my life and then took the next step. And how can I impact even more people by utilizing this type of work in my practice?
0: You do something called regeneration, regenerating imaging Images through memory, RIM, you're an RIM therapist, I believe. a trainer, yeah. And if you could explain uh, what that is and how that could help you. Sure, Uh, again, this happened
1: when I was ill and trying to, I was out of work. Uh, It was interesting. Here I had this major surgery and problem with my gut yet I couldn't think clearly. I couldn't drive. I was acting like many of my patients with concussions. Report. The world's moving too fast. I can't judge distance. I didn't have a direct vision problem and I just couldn't understand what was going on. And through this time, you know, as I'm trying to recover and heal myself, I ran into, um, I saw this little ad in the newspaper and it said, wanted candidates for irritable bowel syndrome, which I was also diagnosed with, which is now very commonly known to be a gut problem and it it could be related to food and nutrition and metabolism. And I thought this is weird because there were no medications for IBS irritable bowel. So I called and found out they were using meditation for um, a chronic illness. And the chronic illness they used was irritable bowel. So I went through this program. It was a PhD thesis student that was using meditation and we were tracking uh, quality of life symptoms of the gut and just overall health. I found, and it, basically we listened to CDs that were created by um, a psychologist, Dr. Deb Sandella, who I did not know at the time. And I really loved, you know, I was a go, go, go person and tell me to meditate and stop and visualize, you know, I'm just like many of the patients I have. You gotta be kidding. You know, I'm a movement person. I need to go, I can't stop and do this. Well, when I was so ill, I was already stopped. So I started listening. To these uh, CDs. And Dr. Depp Sandela actually does a lot of the meditations with Dr. with uh, Jack Canfield, which many of you know has wrote the chicken soup of the soul and now is a, uh, a big um, business consultant doing classes all over the world. So I found this program when we were done, of course, the psychologists found those of us that were doing these meditations had a great decrease in quality of life. Uh, symptoms meaning we felt better there were less symptoms things were so much better I decided I want to do more of this internal visioning um, work how do I find this Dr. Deb Sandella how do I find her in the world so of course I go to you know the smartest computer alive google and and google her and find out that she's actually a couple miles from my office she's a patient of ours And my daughter's teaching her daughter dance lesson. You know, it's one of those signs, stars start lighting up when you start being open and aware. Anyways, I worked with her initially and she was starting a program called RIM, Regenerating Inner Memories. And um, it was so helpful. I had actually lost my mother and was grieving. I was trying to figure out what I was going to do, getting back into practice. I was in a state of, you know, real emotional unrest. And through RIM, which is really internal visioning, I really bounced back. And what I saw, I was so connected with RIM because I call it vision therapy in the body. It was all about inquiry and size and color and all the kinds of questions we'd ask patients, like put on a lens, is it clear or blurry? How close is it? Uh, What color is it? What do you notice around it? It's that type of inquiry in the body. For example, if you have anxiety it's not just about oh tell me what's wrong let me fix it scan the body where in the body do you feel or notice or see or calling your attention what does it look like how does it feel and that's a quick just summary of what rim is but it was like vision therapy internally and that was really the connector of what moved me forward in treating my patients not just with the classical vision therapy uh, kind of their um, activities that we do but bringing in this visualization and internal visioning that we talked about earlier um, as I was working with her she was starting her courses and she said why don't you just take the course you'll learn more and get more experience which I did and then she'd offer the next course and by the end of it I became certified in RIM and I'm beginning to that's really my passion love that I'm moving into personally, even outside of optometry, working with uh, patients either with health issues, school issues, sports issues, of bringing their visioning from within and matching what they see out there to what's going on in their head.
0: You Writing your books and the way you teach is through examples of patients that you've seen uh, over the years. One of the patients that you mentioned is a painter. I believe mm-hmm. you called, you named Betty. Uh, a painter who, uh, who you wanted to give perfect vision to, and she didn't paint well with perfect vision because she needed peripheral awareness. Can you explain that story to us? Yeah, again, you know, looking back on my 40 plus years in
1: career, I see that I had been given all of these messages along the way, and that vision so much more than 2020 in glasses. <laughs> Very early, and it was almost my second year in um, once I was uh, out of school, I had this patient, Betty, who was 70 something, sweetest little lady, had a lot of astigmatism in her glasses. Astigmatism is just a different way of seeing blurry. Most people who wear glasses or contacts have astigmatism. So I did the best exam I could, got her the sharpest, better than 20, 20 vision. I said, here's your new prescription for glasses, Betty. And she said, This is like the seven year, second year i seen her. And she says, Oh, honey, I love your exams. And yeah, I see so good with your glasses, but I don't need this. I don't want these. I say, Betty, with, without your glasses, you're worse than 2100. I know you're a beautiful artist. In fact, I have one of her paintings in my house. And I said, You know, if you don't wear your glasses, how do you paint? And she kind of laughed at me. She says, Oh, honey. Don't you know, I need to see so much more of the world out there. Your glasses make me see way too clear and too sharp. I can't paint that way. I need to paint soft and with just very gentle strokes and your glasses are too clear. I'll see you next year, she says. And so I'm like taken aback. You know, here I have eight years of college and get her the best prescription. And why wouldn't she want to see so well? And that was really the start of my quest is what is going on visually? There is so much more that I seem to be missing something. And that started me off in learning and exploring down the road of vision therapy.
0: It's funny, we all have patients like that. You know, you're always surprised, you know, you, you work so hard with, you know, very high prescriptions, you know, in uh, something called nearsightedness or myopia, you know, Typically, most people are under four, or some people are, are, have a high prescription up to 10. But I remember a patient that we had that was around 18, and we corrected her, her vision with, with contact lenses. And she was seeing, you know, for her, the best she could see was like 2030. And uh, she was normally walking around 2100. And we corrected her vision, and she'd seen 2030. And she, she didn't like it. She wanted her old contact back, where she would only see 2100. And every once in a while you'll get a patient like that. And it, 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 it's very confusing and it may be because of this, they're very focused in on this peripheral awareness. If you could explain what peripheral awareness is and how it, it, it's important in sports. Sure. So again, when we take the visual acuity
1: 2020, it's a very sharp central focus and there's very specific um, uh, cells in our retina for seeing color and acuity and sharpness. And that's what we measure and pay attention to. But we also have awareness of what's going around in the world besides sharpness. For example, when you're driving, it's really important. If you just look at the license plate numbers right in front of you, a car can easily turn in front of you, don't respond, you're not aware of cars on the side and all of this, it'd be a really great driver, much less a race driver we need to really be aware peripherally. We measure that with what we call a visual field tester, which many of you've been, you put your head in a little bowl or an instrument and look at a light and they'll say, push the button when you see these lights in your peripheral vision. So that's one way, that's, that's the primary way that we measure, measure the neurologic aspects of your peripheral field. But there's also more um, awareness and functional um, that you might actually have no field loss but under stress you often could stress and only see central for example have you ever been so stressed on a test like this is your final test and it's so hard and you get so focused you can hardly read the letters or numbers much less know what's going on outside and and if you are in your uh, peripheral field And a great reader, you know, it's very hard to take the test if you don't have open periphery because you can't read very well. It's our peripheral vision that gives us the awareness. Move your eyes to the next set of words. Move your eyes to the next set of words. And so often under stress, stress does lots of things to us. Often we're unaware of sounds of our body, sweat. There's physiological changes. And one of the changes that we'll see under stress is our visual field often constricts. And that's where people, you know, could be at a situation where if somebody walks by, don't scare me, you know, well, I just walked up. It was no big deal. But again, neurologically, we have this balance between more central and peripheral. So, this related to sports. Think about a pitcher. You know, he's on the pitcher's mound. He often then will focus in on the catcher, not just on the catcher or the mitt, put a spot on the mitt to be really focused there. And then often open up again, because if he's just focused on that spot of the mitt, there's going to be, if there's runners on base,
0: they're going to run and
1: have no, he'll have no awareness of the runner. So the periphery, so often the peripheral awareness is open to see the runners focus in. And your, your listeners can try this, where look at something and just really, really, really focus in on it. And notice your breathing and what what's going on here, and then relax. Put their hands out there and notice if they can see their hands, and then really focus in and notice. whoa, we can't see our periphery, and that's all you know. Stress and neurologic changes that we need this balance between central, periphery. Think about football, when they say, "Hey, that quarterback has such a great view of the field." You can find his primary. Uh, Receiver and quickly throw to the secondary. Whereas if we don't have a really open periphery, then maybe they're great on the primary, but if that person's covered, they're totally unaware of the secondary. So I could go sport after sport after sport talking about the importance of periphery. But in much of our therapy, for example, if we treat patients with crossed and lazy eyes, strabismus, amblyopia, we do a lot of work on being aware of periphery. Same thing with musicians. You wanna be a great sight reader? You don't read each note like this, your vision's way ahead, telling the brain where to move and being aware for musical passages. So the central peripheral uh, interaction is a very, very important concept that we work on, even in convergence insufficiency. If we just work focus, 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 often we can't solve the convergence problem. We often work on opening periphery, being aware, gently looking here. And this is where we start getting success in training the eye brain connections in using our vision more efficiently.
0: What are some techniques that could be used to help train peripheral, peripheral lens?
1: Well, the easiest thing, and again, your listeners could do this is, you know, like get a piece of paper with a lot of print on it and just look at an object on it, a letter, and then start noticing how far out to the right, how far out to the left, up, down in all areas, how far out that you could be aware. And you can shift, really focus on the letter and then gently look and be aware of it. Um, So it can be as easy as that. And then we play games, for example, with athletes that that we are throwing them a beanbag from the outside while they're reading letters off a chart, so they're centrally aware, and we're bombarding, bombarding them with beanbags or balls, so they have to be aware. Because in athletics, you know, you can be looking where you want to shoot in basketball, but you need to be aware there is another player defending you over here. So we actually can simulate that uh, central peripheral um, game by doing a lot of peripheral work. It's fun. It's challenging, but it's amazing how you can open up your world. Breathing also helps open up your space world. Often just breathing, relaxing, and just being aware in that concept, being aware of what's out there. All of a sudden you start seeing, whoa, oh, I didn't notice my hands or my computer or you know, the chair. Do
0: you think <coughs> do you think that uh, Big pitchers who we know they have control and they can get it over the plate. Professional pitcher, a good example is a relative Batman on the Yankees. All of a sudden, he can't throw strikes anymore. And do you think any of it is is that he's lost his peripheral awareness and he's, too, and he's too focused?
1: It could be that. It could be a lot of things. It could be... Uh... A visual actually skill breakdown. It could be a lack of visual attention. It could be a problem in spatial awareness and the central periphery as well. And then it also can you know get into the head game. Too often it's blamed on the head game. You know you're just too stressed and whatever. And it could be, but you know if that's their career. You really need to help that athlete find out where the breakdown is. And it certainly could be something like what you just mentioned though, loss of peripheral awareness, so visually focused uh, or the opposite. So peripherally aware, we're not really fixating and and guiding the body where we need to move
0: it. As a Yankee fan, if anybody from the Yankees is watching this, uh, maybe uh, Chapman needs to see somebody uh, that's an expert uh, in vision therapy and visual exercises. And maybe this might be able to help them. Something they may <laughs> want to evaluate. Because well, we, we, want see, we want to see how far the Yankees could go this year. Well, you know,
1: as a Rockies fan, I've been thinking about that for a long time, how we could help our team as well in lots of areas. And, you know, as you know, Carrie, there are a lot of optometrists who are consultants to many um major league college uh, sports groups. Uh, And many of these these professional groups, especially are finding how important uh, vision is in success, not only in enhancement, but especially in rehab after sports concussions. And uh, that's where a lot of my sports vision um, has gone in my practice is working with athletes that have had a concussion and um, very high incidence of vision problems after concussion. And much of their rehab has to do with all the vision things we've talked at, about, at starting from the basic level to the high level performance. And you add the visualization part as well. Very, very much, we add the visualization um, with sports as well as a patient that has strokes and lose, really neurologically lose part of their visual fields. We still work a lot in visualization for expanding their vision.
0: What age do you recommend a child to get their eye exam?
1: Well, we have a program uh, in optometry that actually does free assessments for kids one year and less. So before age one, uh, parents should have their their kiddos into an optometrist to uh, rule out major eye and vision problems. You would rule out like lazy eye or significant eye health problems or significant differences and prescription between the two eyes. And majority of babies are fine, but that would be step one. And then probably around age three, then the child should have another vision exam, which we can get even more information. And a lot of your listeners will say, how would you ever do an eye exam on a one-year-old or a three-year-old? And we have uh, lots of instrumentations. Uh, I'm sure if you remember, there's little light instruments that will look inside the eye and we can measure about how far and near sighted. and play games and have them watch movies. So we can actually get a really uh, thorough vision exam on little kids as long as they will open their eyes. <laughs> you know, if you have a little one that's eyes are shut, that's a challenge, but we can get eye exams on almost any age kiddo. After age three, then age five, if all as well as kind of an entry into school point. And then we like to see our our kids every year through schooling because the demands great are so great, the reading demands are higher. Uh, the speed of processing increases. So we see them every year. And then as adults, at least every two year, maybe every year depending if they wear contact lenses, more often if they have eye health problems. So vision, vision issues are often overlooked because the school just does a 2020 screening. The doctor does that and says everything fine. everything's fine. And I hope by now your listeners know that there's way too much more to look for still and you need a thorough vision exam by an optometrist.
0: Right. Uh, That brings us to the point about a pediatrician having a kid read the eye chart. Parents always want to know, is that enough?
1: Well, it goes back to, well, that's usually 2020. Some pediatricians actually have some higher tech instruments to look at some of the nearsightedness and farsightedness. and do a screening, but a lot don't. And you know, right now, because of insurance and just lots of other health issues, those screenings are like so quick and, and often aren't not are not done well. We still think that the best way to keep your kids healthy is to have your vision exam every year by a doctor of optometry.
0: Well, you mentioned babies before. At what age? do babies' eye movements start to become where they're, where they're starting to develop? We, we don't have to worry. Like very little babies, you know, maybe a couple months old, sometimes they'll show like they look like they have a crossed eye or their eye might wander a little bit. But, but it doesn't mean that their eyes are crossed yet. At what age do we know, okay, that the eyes should be settled by now and they should not be crossed or not be turning out. They should be straight typically four to six months, and often you'll see it much sooner than that.
1: Those eyes should be aligned. But at any age, if you have a baby who won't look at you and you can't get fixation, even when they're within you know eight inches, like, or six inches when a mother's nursing, over time, especially by a month or two, if you're not seeing that baby really be able to start fixating and looking at you, I would take that baby in right away. It could be a visual issue. It could be something like autism or or other issues as well. So that baby, you know, we use language when we see little babies, look how bright that baby is. Look how they're aware, look at them looking. It's all visual stuff. And um, that should be in order really in the first month to two months and if it's not,
0: I'd start checking it out. Thank you for that. Now, parents always wanna know at what age Will their eye color uh, change if they're going to become brown, or what, will their eyes stay blue when when they're born? Do we know exactly what age or approximately what age that is that so we could tell parents?
1: Well, Kerry, I'm going to turn that question around to you. What do you think?
0: Because <laughs> we don't know
1: exactly what age. I I don't even know so if I, there's. I
0: usually say about a year, you know. But uh, but it's it varies on different kids. Sure. So I want to bring. I want to bring up a story, you know, and it's, you know, it's really kind of breaks your heart when you read this story in your book, the story about your patient Trevor. And if you could tell that story, uh, because it's really, I really, it really is a very inspiring story, if I could say. Thank
1: you. Uh, Trevor is a patient so dear to my heart. I saw him when he was a Kidder around eight, nine years old. He was a very bright young kid doing great in school and also very athletic. And at at, uh, around nine years old, he suffered a severe concussion from a motorbike motorbike accident. Uh, It was so bad that they didn't know if he survived and they didn't know if he would ever uh, be able to go to school again, much less sports, much less walk. He was one of those people that... um, you know, prognosis didn't look great initially. Well, they didn't know Trevor. And Dre- Trevor pe- bounced back. Uh, he was in the hospital for months, had a lot of rehab. Through that time, one of his therapists referred him to us and he had significant vision problems. All the things we've talked about. He actually had double vision where one eye wasn't aligned with the other eye. So he had constant double vision. He had visual field loss, meaning if we had him look in that bowl instrument and say, you know, let's measure your peripheral vision, he had lost most of one side and part of the lower side of his vision. Okay. He had focusing problems, eye movement problems. And so through general rehab at the hospital, they don't do any of the kind of work. So they sent him out to us and we started evaluating and do vision therapy with us. Um, he worked really diligently and by the end of, he was in therapy at least a year, maybe 18 months. And we worked on all the things, we talked about tracking, eye alignment, awareness, visualization He had visual processing skills. And we left him at the end of therapy where we couldn't get rid of all the double vision, but we could most of the time get him to use both eyes together. His eye movement accuracy was greatly increased the visual field loss is neurologic loss. It's so severe that he never could learn to drive. Yet this kid got back into school, um, scored at the top of his class in elementary schools, actually was a baseball pitcher, which scared the daylights out of me because if he ever got a line drive back, especially lower on one side, he'd have no awareness of that that where the ball would be. And so I was really worried from a safety standpoint. My story was he must have thrown so hard nobody could hit his balls because he (laughs) survived without an incident all the way through high school. So he goes through high school, scores at the top of high school reading, still limited in certain things like being able to drive safely because he didn't have his peripheral awareness. He couldn't drive safely, Um, but he did so well. He um, got into med school. He did so well in med school that he actually landed a, a very top residency program and started his residency program. So we followed him for years because he needed contact lenses. And so we'd see him once a year. And then um, I got a call from him. It was during his first year of residency, and I could hardly hear him on the phone. He goes, Dr. H, I need your help. I go, Trevor, what's up? And what had happened was because he wasn't driving, he walks everybody, uh, walked everywhere. And he was walking in a crosswalk on the, with the light. Some young, young teen driving and texting, missed the light, hit him. He suffers a second concussion, a severe brain bleed. All of the initial visual problems came back plus more. He lost function in the hand and, and just other things as well. Well, he was in residency program and it was just torture for him to try to come back to the program first of all he needed to physically heal and if you know anything about concussion brain injury part of the healing is uh, you know allowing time for fatigue their patients are often very fatigued and endurance is really a problem and those of you who are docs or you know doctors in residency you're working terrible hours you know 12 14 16 hours every day and what really was a problem he had so much glare light glare that he couldn't really do the electronic records very well. And so we were trying as fast as we could, start therapy again, give him special lenses that, for the filters for the light gear, uh, glare. And um, he just ran into so much resistance in the medical system. Here he is in the medical system, allowing him time to heal. He Even had from his contracts, he had an ulcer. Well, now he can't even see. And to get him to take days off was very difficult. Trevor, finally it ended up being just an ugly situation and they were trying to get him out of his residency program and you know, Dre- Trevor earned this, but people who didn't know him thought, well, you've got all these problems, you don't deserve to be in the residency. He earned the residency piece and all his recommendations were high. Anyways, what finally happened, they sent him for a second opinion on his vision and he came back with the records from the second doctor who goes, I'm done. I go, what do you mean you're done? He says, well, look at my visual field. He said, they said, it's so terrible. I never can be a doctor. I pulled out his visual field from about 20 years ago. I said, Trevor, look, do you see any difference in your fields? He goes, no, they look the same. I go, right. It's always been that bad. You have learned to see despite the visual problem. And the only thing that's changed is the doctor's word to you that you can't be a doctor. So this is the power of the see it, say it, do it. It, The doctor said, you can't do it. He saw himself failing and that was it. And I said, Trevor, it's your internal vision that needs to shift again. You still have the same visual field and you've still learned to deal with it. And that totally shifted his thinking again. And he continued on and on. And it's a very long story, but he, finally improved because they made him leave the residency program. He got the healing he needed and he really got his skills back together. But it was, you know, it was frustrating because of being in the medical system and them not understanding both the vision as well as the um, healing process concussion. So Trevor's still in his journey, journey on his life of now believing he can do what he you know, creates for himself, and still has a visual promise, but has learned to compensate, deal with them, and create the internal visioning still strong of creating what he wants to do in his life.
0: Did he ever become uh, finish a residency, become a practicing physician?
1: Well, it's a, the story goes on and on, and becomes a legal case. And uh, he's now doing a lot of uh, other kind of work. He does have his MD degree it's not over yet but um there were legal issues with the car accident with all of that went on and um,
0: uh, he's not in med school at this time well we pray for him and we wish him certainly certainly well Uh, i want to on uh, one question about neuroplasticity you mentioned it before what is it and how could we improve that
1: yeah, so the concept of neuroplasticity has been around a long time. There's some books, especially the brain that changes and, and there's books out there that talk about how the brain can be uh, can change at any age. And there's so many stories, Oliver Sacks, who's a great neurologist, who's written some books, uh, a man who mistook uh, his wife for a um, coat or a rack. And it talks about, Especially after trauma, how people can still reteach and relearn the brain. Now we know that learning, especially at a young age, you know, kids learn things so new. If you want to learn a foreign language, you want to learn music. That early on in your life is when you'll have best success to learn quickly. But we also see as an adult that you can learn to talk again, walk again. I mean, Trevor showed signs of neuroplasticity. Had specific direct injury and damage to the brain, yet yeah, learn to either repair some of the damaged area or learn new ways of being able to perform. And so the exciting part is that at any age, the brain can adapt and change. Um, there's a great book called um, Fixing My Gaze by Dr. Sue Berry, who's a, who was a neurobiologist. And she had crossed lives, lazy eyes, a whole history of eating glasses and patching and and surgeries. And as an adult, she ended up getting double vision and all these symptoms all of a sudden started coming up as an adult. And as a 50 year old, she started vision therapy and her book is beautiful. You can also Google her on, uh, she's been interviewed on NPR and she talks about when as an adult, having therapy to improve her eye brain connection It was not only the eyes got straighter, it's what happened in the world. She talks about how beautiful all of a sudden the steering wheel was like jumping out at her and getting her depth perception and seeing the world in such depth. And so again, here's an adult that's had surgeries, still has a vision dysfunction that was able to alter her, not only her skill, reduce her symptoms and talks about her life and world changing. As that whole of peripheral awareness starts coming into play, so it's an exciting concept. It, uh, you know, it should be exciting for people, especially after concussion and stroke, to know how many people learn to rewalk, retalk, and refunction. It doesn't always get you back to where you were, but it's the hope that you may not be stuck at the place you're at right now. Healing can take place.
0: As we wrap up, is there anything? that I left out that you want to uh, relate to the audience that I might have not asked you that you like to tell people.
1: Uh, Carrie, I think you've done a great job and I could just tell story after story of successes, uh, kids reading better, athletes performing better, concussion patients getting their lives back. Um, I just think the hope is important and make sure that you if, if you have a visual issue, make sure that you're with an eye doctor that um, gives you the answers and direction and hope. And if you're not, ask that eye doctor. You might be with a great family eye doc who doesn't do vision therapy. Ask that eye doc, is there anybody that can do more, maybe do vision therapy and be evaluated and go beyond. And it's what I love about your show. You're looking about You seem to always look at what else might be done. What are some other options and possibilities? And I just encourage your listeners to look at vision that same way, because there is lots of uh, options and possibilities for improvement and enhancement of your visual world.
0: Thank you for that, Lynn. Uh, People want to find out more about Dr. Lynn Hellerstein.
1: How can they do that? Sure. You can check out my website, lynnhellerstein.com. I also have right on there social media connections uh, uh, that you're welcome to do it. But but uh, my email also, you could write drhdrh at linhellerstein.com.
0: And if people want to get your book, how can they do it?
1: Uh, all of my books are available on Amazon, uh, as well as my website. Another book we didn't talk about was 50 Tips to Improve Your Sports Performance, which is a really fun book for especially coaches of uh, kids and adults of all ages, basic little visual activities that you can do right on the court, right on the field to really improve visual functioning.
0: Well, I want to thank Dr. Lynn Hellestein for spending some time with me today. From the Fiesta Americana in Cancun, Mexico, this is Dr. Kerry Gelb for Open Your Eyes. Thank you. Fitting multifocal contact lenses presents a big opportunity to meet patient needs while growing your practice. Alcon is your partner not only with our innovative portfolio, but through e-learning. Learn to enhance your multifocal strategy today with the Alcon Experience Academy. Since I bought Safe for You, my dad makes me clean his boat.
1: It's natural
0: y es un buen producto.
1: Every time I go back to school, my mom always makes sure that I have
0: my Safe For You products. I bring extra, and my roommates certainly don't mind. It's a good thing I had Safe For You to clean up after this little guy. When my hands get dry, I like to wash them with Safe For You. And most importantly, the reason why I buy Safe For You is because it's safe for me and you.